On this edition of the Plate Meeting, we welcome Mike Riley. 69 career rejections in over 4,500 professional Major League Baseball games. An umpire of six league division series, nine league championship series, four World Series, and four All-Star games. Mike Riley will talk about spring training, which gets underway in Florida and Arizona this week, and so much more. It's the Plate Meeting with our guest, Mike Riley, and it's now. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Riley, 34-year veteran Major League umpire, and we are the Plate Meeting Podcast. And we welcome you to the Plate Meeting Podcast, powered by Close Call Sports. You've heard the introduction. Let's welcome in our guest, the great Mike Riley. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Well, guys, it's a pleasure for me to sit down and talk baseball anytime. So uh, I look forward for our time together here today. Well, I should mention Tim McCaffrey hosting, Gil Ember running the controls, so you know who everybody is. And I think everybody knows who Mike Riley is. And, Mike, it's uh, it's it's coming up on uh, spring training time. It's prep time. You're getting ready for the season. So if you were going to umpire, how would you, um, you know, get ready to go from Michigan down to your destination down south? Well, I'll tell you what, when it comes to spring training, that was probably the most exciting time for all the guys to get back to work. For one, you've missed what you what you really like to do for a few months, and now you get to see the guys again and be around the game again. So spring training was always a lot of fun. Uh, you would go for a month, and you wouldn't work every day like we do during the season, so we'd always have time to be with our families and uh and uh, and enjoy the warmer weather, uh, especially for us guys that lived up north for all those years. Spring training meant that we were getting out of the snow and going to the warmth. So that was always something we always looked forward to doing. Did Major League Baseball require you to be down in Florida for a set amount of time? And was there a minimum number of games you had to work or plates that you had to work while down there? Yes, they did. Uh, uh, for the younger umpires, and I, I think it was like uh, eight years and younger, uh, seniority-wise, they had to work the full spring training, which was a slate of probably 25 games. And veteran umpires uh, were allowed to work uh, about 12 games. And uh, so we would work 12 games in that month and uh, and then have a little more time off than the younger umpires. So it was uh, always an advantage to get to uh, uh, more seniority under your belt and you'd have less games you had to work and you could enjoy the uh, the uh, weather. And uh, for me, I always went to Florida for spring training, so I would enjoy the Florida sunshine. And uh, were you, were you, I know you're playing golf these days uh, in and around uh, Florida. Yep. Were you playing as much golf back then? Take me through a typical spring training day for Mike Riley uh, towards the end of your career. Well, Spring training, I, I, you know, they're almost all day games. Uh, a few night games that were sprinkled in there, but they were mostly day games. So we didn't, uh, I wasn't able to play uh, much golf uh, during spring training. Uh, a lot of times I would play after a game, try to go in and get nine holes, or on an off day I would, uh, I would play uh, uh, various courses around uh, the Orlando area, which I was stationed for spring training. But uh uh, but with the day games, didn't get out to play as much as uh, I would have liked. But, you know, you got to remember what your day job is. And, you know, one of the things that we, you know, I'm always intrigued about 
is the plate umpire stays the same. But all of a sudden in the fifth inning, the first base umpire moves to third or guys are what did that? You, I mean, obviously you were around 34 years doing spring trainings. When, was that always occurring that guys were just moving all around on the bases or if not, when did it start? Uh, well, I, I, you know, it wasn't originally you were signed to first or third base, or if you had a four man crew that day, a lot of times we used just three umpires in spring training, but, um, uh, no, originally you would work. If you were assigned to third, you worked the whole game. Well, then we figured that, uh, I don't know, my last maybe 10 years, we started moving around. And if you were at first, uh, to start, you would go to third and then finish up at second. So I think it was just something that in the course of the work that day, you might've had a couple plays at first and now it's time to maybe get a couple plays at second and, and work on positioning and, and different various things that you might work on going out on fly balls. That would be the responsibility of a second base umpire instead of the first base umpire. So I think in one game, you can bring back some of the stuff that you might not have done, you know, sitting home during the winter. So I think it just kind of helps the, preparation for the season to work various different positions game to game let's take a you know a journey through uh mike riley's backstory now as okay. if every umpire there's a beginning to their career when did you umpire your first baseball game well i was one of those guys that really never umpired before he went to umpire school uh I, I was a player. I played in high school. I played in all the, the summer leagues and uh, uh, went to college and uh, realized that, uh, hey, baseball wasn't, I wasn't going to play anymore and had some coaches that uh, I had started to referee in intramural basketball for spending money just to get through school. And so it was that side of the game, seeing how basketball was administrated, that I started looking at baseball and uh, I had a few of my coaches say hey Mike uh, you know you're not going to go anymore you have this love for baseball which I did uh, you know I had four brothers and we we're always playing baseball so I had this love for baseball always wanted to be a part of it uh, not embarrassing to have uh, not enough skills to play at the major league level because not many people do so uh, I was fortunate with some coaches back home that influenced me to think about umpiring and going to an umpire school. So the summer before I really started making that decision, I started working a few uh, small, not little league game, but junior varsity baseball and stuff like that. And uh, kind of got my feet wet with maybe 20, 25 games before I went to umpire school. So I, I knew almost nothing about umpiring when I went to umpire school. So Everything, I had no bad habits or I didn't have to, I, I had to learn. And, and that's what I was uh, able to do by going to the umpire school and realizing that I love this game of baseball and I want to be close to it and I want to be on the field. So umpiring gave me that avenue to be out there on the field and experience the competition of the game. And when I say competition of the game for umpires, people always say, what do you mean? There's no competition umpires. Well, there is because every day the umpires go out, I have a competition to be as good as I possibly can and officiate the game the way it should be officiated. And that's perfectly, but that's not possible because I'm human. So through the umpire school, we learn that stuff and, so that's basically kind of how I got started is just 
for my love of the game of the baseball and wanting to be around it. And I was fortunate. I had some really good mentors back home, teachers and coaches that pushed me to think about going to the professional umpire school. Since we're touching on it for a second, Michigan is just a state that is rich with excellent umpires. I mean, I, I'm sure you could give me the names of all the Michigan big league umpires just in a snap of a finger, but it, it's pretty amazing for a state that's, you know, in the cold and sometimes you don't get on the field until April uh, that so many umpires have come out that not only major league umpires, but really big time collegiate umpires as well. Yeah, and we really do. You're exactly right. And I, I always took it as a compliment because uh, I used to have local people there and, and Ernie Harwell being one of them used to call me the Dean of Michigan umpires. And, and because we did have so many, uh, uh, I was fortunate. Uh, well, uh, we had an older National League umpire that was from Michigan, but really didn't live there. He lived in California. But when I went to umpire school and and got to the major leagues, but I had plenty of guys to follow me. I had the Welke boys. Tim McClellan was from Michigan. And, I mean, we just uh, kind of went down the list. And so we did. There was there really was a lot of major umpires that came out of the state of Michigan. I don't know what we attribute that to, but probably just good sports backgrounds that we all came from and, uh, and were able to, you know, move that on to a career uh, umpiring in professional baseball. We'll get to another nickname uh, Ernie Harwell gave you in a, in a minute, or in, in more than a minute, but we'll get to it a little bit later on. But I want to touch back on your career in minor league baseball. So you go to umpire school, and, you know, I, I, while I know which one, why don't you tell the listening audience what umpire school you went to and how you found out that you were going on to minor league baseball? Well, the umpire I went to at that time was called uh, Umpire Development. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Barney Deer, he was the director. And umpire school was different back then because uh, it, even though they had the Wendelstead Umpire School, but uh, baseball umpire development was run by a major league baseball. It was funded by the teams. And so they developed umpires and, and would develop them through the school and start them through the minor leagues. That has changed now. We really only have the one umpire school. But uh, when I went, it was called Umpire Development. It was in St. Petersburg, Florida. And uh, and that's where I went. And, of course, like a lot of things now, it's no longer there. But uh, uh, the Wendelstead School uh, does a great job of developing umpires. And, and we're getting great young umpires with a lot of talent and a lot of things to offer the game. Isn't it funny on a side note that there was some talk that Rob Manfred wanted to uh, take control of uh, minor league umpires and start developing themselves? It's it's funny, Mike. Really is true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and yeah. If that were to happen, it, people are like, oh, my God, that could never happen. And you just told us, hey, that was the case back a long time ago. Yeah, like I said, the umpire school I went to uh, was not individually owned. Uh, they had a couple different. The Wendelstead School obviously was the main competition for the school, but umpire development was every major league team was assessed X amount of dollars to run this umpire school to pay for the staff, the facility, and then the development of umpires. And then they would always take the best umpires out of uh, umpire development and the best ones out of Wendelstead School and then run them through the minor leagues and see who they could get to the major leagues. So, yeah, that uh, is actually an excellent way to run it. But uh, uh, 
Uh, I'm good that the Wendelstadt schools always been able to have their rich uh, tradition of developing uh, minor league and major league umpires. A pretty successful minor league career that I'd have to say culminated in uh, umpire in the 1976 Caribbean World Series. I, I want to take you back to your minor league career in a moment, but uh, I, that Caribbean World Series has been notorious for having some of the most intense, crazy games. Now, you umpired four major league baseball uh, World Series. Which was harder, the Caribbean World Series in 1976 or the World Series you'd later work? Well, I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> That's easy for me to answer. The Caribbean World Series, that was uh, that was in the Dominican Republic, and I was 24 years old, and uh, I had this blonde hair, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and actually Ted Hendry and I uh, – we were in Puerto Rico working the winter league down there that winter, and they had just fired uh, the American League umpires down there because of th some things that the umpires were dissatisfied as far as no backing. It's it's tough to work when you go into the Latin American countries, but if they don't have American umpires down there, they don't have any control of the game. So they were having some problems in the Dominican, and the American umpires were told to come home. Well, I'll never forget that Barney Deary came down to Puerto Rico, and uh, he pulled Ted and I aside, and he said, we'd like you guys to uh, go down and work the Dominican playoffs, and then as a bonus – you guys can stay there and work the Caribbean World Series. Well, Ted and I looked at each other like, oh, my gosh, you got to be careful what you wish for. Uh, it was kind of a nice little payday for minor league umpires. But, again, there would be a lot of responsibility went with it. But it, it was a great experience. Uh, and uh, it is by far the toughest World Series. I always tell people I had five World Series, four here in the United States, and that Caribbean World Series was, was by far the toughest one to work. As you were going through your minor league journey, does anything stand out to you? Was there ever a time that you were like, boy, they, people don't realize, Mike, I know you do, how much people like you went through in order to get what these major league baseball umpires have today? And it was a lot of towns that were, uh, that let's just say after a game, if you didn't get a couple hot dogs, you weren't eating that night, right? I mean, minor league baseball today is a big business. Back then, it was small town USA. Right. And it was, and, and, and boy, and it was, what a great experience I had in the minor leagues. And, and I was very fortunate that I only spent five years in the minor leagues. A lot of guys spend a lot longer in the minor leagues than that. So I was very blessed to only put five years, but you talk about hot dogs. I, I, you know, we're making very little money, players and umpires alike, but I, I can remember almost all the ballparks, the hot dogs that were not sold in the concession stands, is what we ate after the games. So we, we ate our fair share of hot dogs just uh, because that was there and, uh, and it was free. So, uh, but the minor leagues was a great experience for me. I, again, I started when I was young and uh, here, you know, here I was traveling around and really seeing good baseball in, uh, and I was fortunate I've started in the Florida State League, so we had great stadiums there because they were spring training stadiums. Uh, and uh, I spent two years there, and then I went up to the Eastern League, and those stadiums weren't as nice as the stadiums we had in Florida, but the baseball was better. Uh, I got to go into Canada for three cities, uh, one being uh, uh, Three Rivers and then Montreal, not Montreal, Quebec City. And we went to a town called Thetford Mines, which was an old mining town 
probably about 10,000 people in the whole place and probably the worst hotel I've ever stayed at in my life. So, uh, but again, great experience. Make It really makes you appreciate what you were able to accomplish and get to the major league level after that experience with minor leagues. But uh, my minor league experience was just a ball. I worked with some great guys. Steve Palermo and I worked for almost three years together uh, in the minor leagues. Couldn't have been a finer guy to work with. Uh, and I had three or four other partners that I just had a ball working with. And it, 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 to me, we, we weren't making much money, but we had one heck of a lot of fun. So uh, I, my minor league days are great. I had great experiences. And, you know, when you love the game of baseball and you're there to work and you go there every day and, and you're trying to get this goal to make it to the major leagues, so you're going to bust your butt every day to do everything you can and try to be perfect at it. And uh, and uh, the sad thing about it is such a low percentage of umpires that go through the minor leagues and make it to the major leagues. I wish it could be more, but that's not the way it works because once you get there, you stay long. You've got guys like myself that, I mean, I worked 34 years at the major league level and 39 years with my five-year minor league experience. But I mean, I could have stayed longer, but I was fortunate. I went up young, and I, I was able to retire fairly young too. So, uh, I, I, we'll we'll get to this, Mike. But I think people remember you as a great umpire. They don't. Certain guys stay around, and you love them, but they stay around two or three years too long, and then people remember them for their mistakes at the end of their career. I don't want to mention any names, but you left, no. and you know, there's a lot of guys, Steve Ripley, the same thing. You left at the right time, you know, no, at. I, at your peak of your career you're, you're exactly right i always i always like i said 34 years is a long time i worked over four thousand or whatever six games 600 games or whatever but i retired at 60 and i was still in very good physical shape and actually you know not to be overbearing and conceited like but my ratings were still good but i didn't want to have to one of those days where i one of those moments where they'd look back at my career as good as it could have been, and then say, well, he's the guy that missed that call in the World Series because uh, we didn't have the full-blown replay to blow you up, you know, to back you up and get you out of a situation now that they have now. So, you know, you feel sorry for some of the guys. Like, and just Don Denkinger, just a great umpire and a great guy, but he had the one moment of a play that obviously he missed, but, uh, you know, it kind of overshadowed his great career. So I was fortunate I didn't have that. I thank God I didn't have that. And and I left healthy, too, and uh, did a really good job of trying to keep myself in shape for my career, keep my weight down. And so my knees are good, my back is good, and, and that gives me the good time to play golf four times a week now. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very thankful for all that stuff. So, But, but you're right. I, I got out at the right time. So it was perfect for me. Now, you mentioned Steve Palermo. You were one of two American League umpires to never use the outside protector. Did you have to use it at all when you were working in the minor leagues? Yeah, I tell you, the year I went to umpire school was 1972, and that's the year, the first year, where they said you can do either. Now, uh, at that time, the American League guys were all using the outside chest protectors, and if you were under option to the uh, American League, you wore that outside chest protector. And, uh, but I, I made the decision. I thought I could see pitches better with the inside chest protector. I knew that 
that might limit me a little bit from the American League, maybe not look at it me as much as, say, some of the other guys who were still using the outside chest protector. But I was very fortunate that Dick Butler had the foresight to understand that uh, that probably the inside chest protector at that time is the best way to see pitches. And so I was never forced to use the outside chest protector, and, and I was lucky enough to just stay with that inside and work it through the minor leagues and then went to the American League and worked it. But I worked with a lot of guys in the American League that still used it. Bill Haller, my first crew chief was, uh, uh, you know, he was an outside guy. So, but it, it, once people started working the inside chest protector, they could just see that it was a better way to see the strike zone. And, and, and you just, could, you could umpire a lot more consistently working that, that protector. You, you touched on Dick Butler. This is the favorite question that I ask in every podcast that we do with a former Major League Baseball umpire coming out of the American League, which now approaches, a, I think, a half dozen or more. Mike, right. when did you find out that uh, and how did you find out that, you know, the American League was, first of all, taking your option? And secondly, how did you find out that you were going to be on the American League staff? Well, I was very fortunate that I went my winter leagues. I went to Puerto Rico, and uh, and I was lucky because I, Steve Plummer and I both went together, and we were both at that time only two guys that were, we were just in Double A. But they took us to Puerto Rico, and for winter baseball, and they didn't. All, they took prospects down there. They didn't take suspects. They, the people that because they only had like uh, I think there's eight of us that went down there each winter between Puerto Rico and the Dominican. So you had to be a prospect. So I knew kind of coming out of double A that, that uh, Dick Butler was there and he was interested in me. And, I, and actually I think the national league was hanging on, but Dick Butler, for some reason, and God rest his soul. Cause I loved him, especially what, for what he did for me. And, and, uh, but, uh, he was at Puerto Rico. I'll never forget one day. I, I, I had a play where we had uh, runner interference between first and second and, I called out the runner and, uh, and then I had to call out the batter at first and then I had to throw out the runner. Then I had to throw out Jose Pagan out of the game. And I'm telling you in Puerto Rico, I had more liquor bottles thrown onto the field. It was just one big, what we call an umpiring shithouse. And so I'm going, Oh my God, I got Dick Butler in the stands. I just got this very controversial play. And I'm going, you know, and I'm throwing out a manager. And again, I'm, you know, I'm 23 years old, and, and so I'm young. And uh, but I'll be darned if Butler didn't come in and said that was a great call. He said it took a lot of courage. And and from that day, and from that one controversial play, he stayed with me the whole time. And uh, I'll never forget. It was in Winter Haven, Florida. He took me after a game. He took me out into the bullpen. And I didn't know if he was going to send me back down to the minor leagues or whatever, but he said that he just bought my option and I'd be going to the major leagues. So uh, uh, I have a lot to be indebted to Dick Butler. He was very, very good to me. The date, April, this makes me uh, all of a sudden, April 11th, 1977. That was about three months before I was born. You umpire your first major league baseball game with uh, – Greg Kosk, Russ Getz, and Terry Cooney. It's in Texas. Sure was. Take me through that experience. Well, the first night, I, you know, I flew in, and, and obviously he was very, very uh, excited to be there. And uh, 
Russ was a, a senior umpire and a crew chief at that time, so he sat down and talked to me. But uh, I'll never forget the kind of funny experience. So I started third, and by the time I get for my very first plate job, I've got Gaylord Perry and Ross Grimsley, both pitchers that have been accused of using illegal spitballs and, you know, and I go, oh, my God, I got Earl Weaver, and it wasn't Billy Martin. I'm trying to think who the manager was for Texas. Well, it doesn't matter. But So I got two pitchers that are very controversial about the legality of their pitching, and I'm going, this is quite a thing. But I was kind of lucky when I think back on it because neither one could pitch about the other one, you know, loading up a, a spitball or whatever, because they both did it. So the game went fairly flawlessly, and uh, and that was it. But that that was the very first one in the old Arlington uh, Stadium. So you know, one of the reasons you you can't figure out who the manager was in 1977 was because they had four managers that year, despite finishing second. Um, they wow. they had Frank Lucchese, Eddie Stanky, Connie Ryan, and Billy Hunter all manage the team during stretches of that season. Although, uh, oh, that's, I'm not really, that's incredible. That I remember every one of those names, but I didn't realize that they had four managers in that period of time. Yeah, they, so, they brought Stanky back for one game and just bizarre. Wow, wow. So whoever was there for the first, probably the start of that uh, 77 season was probably who the manager was. Yeah, he came back uh, for one day, Eddie Stanky, in June, and he wow. quit after the first day and left for Alabama. <laughs> I mean, just, <laughs> oh, back in the day, That's he had so great. much great stuff. Let's talk about your first ejection. So everybody takes a run at the new guy, right? Mm-hmm. And the first yeah. guy to really take a serious run at you was Trader Jack McKeon on a Bach non-call on a cold April day in Oakland on uh, the 26th of 1977 any memories from uh when you first had to give the heave ho in the major leagues you know that's funny i i had kind of forgotten who my first ejection was uh, and i would answer that differently and I, i'll answer it the one i thought it was but jack mckean and i go back to our puerto rico days and and uh, him and i actually got along very well together and and I liked him, and uh, and I think he respected me also. So that was funny. I forgot that one. But the one I the one very early that I remember was and it was a day game. I remember it vividly because uh, uh, Jim Palmer was pitching, uh, kind of notorious for pitching and moaning. You know, everything he threw, we thought was a strike, and and I got Earl Weaver in the dugout. So. I got Palmer on the mound. Here I am. I'm in Baltimore. It's a Sunday day game. Uh, beautiful sunny day. I'll, I'll never forget it because, like I said, it, it makes me think it was my first ejection, but obviously it wasn't. But so Palmer's bitching a little bit. Now Weaver's yelling out of the dugout. Uh, you know, Palmer wants a pitch here, pitch there. And all of a sudden I hear Earl. Well, I ended up ejecting Earl from the dugout as he was, you know, and now he comes out. And he goes, I'm going to go talk to Palmer, but I'm not done with you yet. I go, oh, boy. All right, I got to be smart enough. I'm not going to go down and stand by home plate because there's dirt there. Weaver was notorious for kicking dirt and especially somebody young. And I said, so I'm going to stand right here at the third base coaching dugout, right where he had to walk to his dugout. And I'll be honest with you, he came back, and, and I'll never forget what he said to me because he said, you know what, kid? He called me kid. He says, you're going to be a good umpire. 
Before your career's over, you're going to be a good umpire. But you can't umpire today like you've been umpiring. <laughs> and it just kind of just stuck in my mind. And, and it wasn't really much of an argument. I had really many more and more serious, heated arguments with Earl before his career was over. But uh, that was the one that stuck out in my mind as being one of my very, very first ejections. Speaking of uh, Earl Weaver, you happen to be on the field on a cold September in Baltimore, September 17th. It wasn't that cold, although it it uh, a little chilly, according to the box yeah. score. When yeah. Bill Haller and Earl Weaver had a nice conversation, you were the second base umpire, and I'll never forget it, you coming over and you looked like, oh boy, I better not break this up. This is one of those ones that I got to stay out of the way here. Um, yeah. Can you take me through what? What your, what your experience was on, on, on just witnessing that famous Bill Haller, Earl Weaver argument? Well, I'll tell you what, it was incredible. And again, it was a night game. I mean, I'm telling you that we were all, and the reason why that argument became so well known is because all four of us umpires were might. Ron Luciano was at third, Ken Kaiser was first, and I was actually at second. And Bill Haller was at the plate. Uh, Mike Flanagan was the pitcher that day. But like I said, we were all might because at that time it was called uh, PM Magazine. And similar to like Entertainment Tonight or the shows that are, you know, run now. But PM Magazine. So we were all might and they were doing a day in the life of the umpire. So, okay. So our crew's in Baltimore. We're all mic'd up. Flanagan is the pitcher. The first four pitches of the game were balls. One, two, three, four. The hitter walks to first base. The very next pitch, Flanagan makes a move to first base and Bill Haller calling for a balk. And so that argument started after the fifth, actually the fourth pitch, because the, the fifth one, he was attempting a move to first and was called for a balk. So that so, whole so. argument took place that quickly in that game to elevate. Now, Bill and Earl had, had words over the year, which everybody had words with Earl Weaver over the years. And Bill was just a tremendous umpire. But that argument, and I, I wish I could relate the whole thing to the fans, but it just went back and forth about who had won, been in more World Series, and each one calling each other liar. It, it, it was absolutely hilarious. And I'm sitting behind the mound, and I have my hands across my chest, and I'm never saying, but Kaiser's there, Ken Kaiser, and Eddie Murray at that time is the first base umpire. And we would, it was like a tennis match. Our, we would follow Weaver to Haller, Haller back to Weaver, and the things that were said were hilarious. And Earl would leave the field, and he'd come right back. He'd take 10 steps toward his dugout, he'd come back. So here we are, four pitches into the game and into one of the most hilarious arguments I've ever been around. Your career in the minor leagues was quick, and your first World Series in 1984 had to be a thrill. It's Detroit and San Diego. You work with Doug Harvey, Larry Barnett, Bruce Fremming, Rich Garcia, and Paul Runge. I know you'd work the postseason before that, but not only getting to umpire uh, in Detroit, in a place you loved working in Tiger Stadium, but also getting to work the Fall Classic. 
How did you find out you were getting the 1984 World Series? <laughs> well, it's kind of a funny story, but uh, back in those days, uh, they didn't call you. They would send you a letter and it'd be from the commissioner's office, and it would say you've been chosen to work the World Series. Well, I, I had gone home, and a lot of times that was a year, if you remember, um, we had a labor we were on strike for the first part of the playoffs. Okay. Uh, and so they used uh, amateur umpires to do the first round of the playoffs. They only had first round playoffs and not all the buy stuff and stuff they have now. So I, because I was so involved in the labor stoppage, I really hadn't gone to the mailbox. And uh, <laughs> I, I swear to God, the league called me and said, Mike, did you get a letter? I said, no. Well, go to the mailbox. You're working the World Series if we settle this labor dispute. And I go, oh, my God. So I, sure enough, I go to the mailbox, and I've got the letter from the commissioner's office stating that I'm working the World Series. So sure enough, and now it gets down to major league umpires did not work any of the rounds of the playoffs. And but they flew us all out to San Diego, and I'll never forget sitting with Peter Uberoff, uh in in, uh, in the hotel there. And he said, now, listen, you guys are coming back to work. I don't care what the owners say. You guys will be back to work. Peter was a great commissioner and really a good, good commissioner for the umpires. And he said, you guys will be on the field, I can promise you. So we were able to work the World Series. And, and like I said, that, that group of umpires that I worked with was just five tremendous umpires. And here I was a very, very young umpire and very appreciative to have the assignment to work the World Series. So it it, it turned out to be phenomenal. And so it, it, it was a thrill to to work it in my home state, people will always say, well, weren't you a Tiger fan? Well, I never grew up a Tiger fan. I grew up a, t a fan of the game of baseball. I was never really a fan of a particular team, just the game. So it wasn't any emotionally thing. I, what made it good for me is that, uh, like I said, my, my parents, my brothers, my friends and family were all able to go to the game. So it, it really was quite fun. In 1992, you had the pleasure of getting your second World Series with uh, Jerry Crawford, Joe West, Bob Davidson, John Shulock, and Dan Morrison. It was Toronto versus Atlanta. I believe you mm -hmm. got a cover of Sports Illustrated out of this? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. Uh, I was on the cover there. I had a play at, at first base, or I had a play at the, at the plate. I guess that would have been game five, maybe. I think it was. I think it was game five. And it was a very, very close play, and some people thought the tag was applied. I personally think the fit was on top of the plate. And John Smoltz, to this day, whenever I talk to him, agrees with me. So, But we didn't really have good replay cameras as good as we have now and never did come out and really say I was right, totally wrong. But uh, it was a little bit of an argument. And uh, But, uh, that, you know, that's the game. You're going to have close calls. It just happened to be. If that was during a regular season – wouldn't have been anything said. And, uh, and again, now we don't have the replays and all that stuff that we have now. So it was just a little bit different, but, uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. You, you can't believe how many sports illustrated covers I've signed over the course of the year. And I still get a couple that come in every month or so and, and sign them still for all the collectors that are out there. You know, 
I think it's funny. We always try to tie in. Bob Davidson was our first guest on the <laughs> on the podcast. And we always try to tie in a little now mention. That, that podcast of, had to go about three hours, huh? You know, that was when we were trying to keep it around an hour. And uh, I had <laughs> about 18 pages more questions for him. And uh, you know, Bob's a good friend of the show. And uh, who knows? You know, it's always you know, he, a He's a great guy and a great storyteller. So uh, he is, uh, he is a really, really one of the really good guys. I, as doing, you know, a lot of research for this, Mike, I came across something that I found very interesting. You know, we've had a, a few guests on Jerry, Jerry Crawford to name one talking about his father working the last game uh, oh, sure. at Connie Mack and then the first game at the vet. You had the opportunity yeah. to work the last game in Tiger Stadium and you didn't. Um, yeah. Is that your biggest yeah. regret in baseball? Yeah, well, you know, it was kind of, but you know, I wanted to finish the year with my crew and uh, uh, we had a great crew and, and, and we we're out on the West Coast and uh, it, it, yeah, it's a regret because I had so many memories in Tiger Stadium actually dating back to when my father took us to games as kids and uh, with my brothers and and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of regret it, but oh, I worked a lot of games there and had, had a lot of fun. But uh, so, yeah, a little bit of a regret now, but at the time I did what was uh, right for me. We're going to take a short break on the Plate Meeting Podcast powered, play, powered by Close Call Sports. When we return, we'll talk about more World Series with our guest, Mike Riley. And a lot more, including taking some of your questions. That's when we return to the Plate Meeting Podcast, powered by Close Call Sports. Did you know that 76% of sports officials who quit officiating cite poor sportsmanship as the reason they left the job? It's no wonder then that 55% of fans admit to heckling officials. Any number higher than zero in both of these categories is too high, and we need to do something about it. Here at OSIP, we offer a number of programs to promote good sportsmanship, including Officials Anonymous, a toll-free confidential hotline for officials to call just to get things off their chest. If you're an official who has taken abuse, or if you suffer from anxiety, anger, or depression as a result of officiating, and you just need to talk to someone, call Officials Anonymous at 888-930-OSIP. That's 888-930-6747. The OSIP Foundation, renewing the standard of sportsmanship. Welcome back to the plate meeting. Here, powered by Close Call Sports, T-Mac here, Gil uh, working in the controls, and our guest, 34-year Major League umpire veteran, Mike Riley. Mike, you were the home plate umpire in Game 5 of the 2002 World Series with Jerry Crawford, Angel Hernandez, Tim Cheetah, Mike Winters, Tim McClelland, and uh, Darren Baker. A lot of people don't know who Darren Baker is, but uh, he's but you do. And this yeah. young child was on the field during a potential play at the plate in game five of the World Series. Now, J.T. Snow picked the youngster up, who was Dusty Baker's son, the manager at the time of the San Francisco Giants. And uh, it's it's an interesting picture, and you were right there for all of it. Did you see his son on the field during this play? And uh, if you did, take me through the, the play and overall. Well, if I take you through the play, you know, the ball was hit out to right field, and uh, – so now the throw is coming uh, from right field. Um, and and then I do see the little bat boy coming out. At that time, I didn't know he was Dusty's son. and uh, But, I mean, he's only two feet tall. He's just a little guy. But, again, 
I'm seeing him out of the corner of my eye because I'm focusing on this throw that's coming in because we have a potential play at the plate. And uh, had the ball not been cut off at first base, it was cut off by the first baseman, we could have very easily had a major collision with the ball boy, J.T. Snow, and the catcher there. So thank God the ball was cut off because who knows how that play would have developed whether I've got to call, you know, interference on the ball boy. Uh, the ball boy could be very, J.T. Snow's a big man. He could have bowled him over. And the catcher is, he's, the catcher's actually got the same angle of the play because he's watching the throw coming to, to home plate that I had. And, and then out of the corner of the eye, you see this little guy coming up to get the bat. So it was one of those plays that you'll probably never, ever see again. But uh, thank God the first baseman cut the ball and uh, off at first base, and the play did not develop at home plate. Your final World Series in 2007, the Boston Red Sox sweep the Colorado Rockies. Kind of a new wave of umpires coming in, and Laz Diaz, Ted Barrett, and Mike Everett. Also, Ed yeah. Montague worked on the series, and your old good friend, uh, Chuck Merriweather, who I wanted to touch on right now. Um, yeah. you know, Chuck, Chuck passed away. I know you were planning on seeing him in Tennessee uh, right before he died, and uh, unfortunately, you know, circumstances happened. I, I know you worked a lot with Chuck and were a good friend. Uh, your thoughts on, uh, I know, losing two friends in such a short amount of time. We, we touched on Eric Cooper on another podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. Talk about Chuck Merriweather. Well, Chuck was, uh, like I said, uh, Chuck was on my crew for numerous years. I, you know, four or five years I had Chuck and probably the finest gentleman that I've ever known in the game and just, a, just an all-around great guy. And I had plans uh, that Monday uh, to see Chuck alive and then Chuck passed away on Saturday. So uh, we, uh, my wife and I, Mary and I, went down and went to Chuck's funeral, and I, it was probably one of the most heartfelt funeral I've, I've ever been around. There were so many people there that uh, cared so much for Chuck and uh, his hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, and the warm people there were just tremendous. And so he will be very much missed and. And uh, I was sorry that I didn't get to see him on that Monday before he passed away on that Saturday. But God had different intentions for Chuck, and uh, and and that's where we are there. But he very much missed. Uh, uh, I've been able to talk to Jeremy a couple times and and reach out to him and his brother Chris. And and but uh, I think they're all doing you know well. And uh, and Chuck is definitely. Uh, up there organizing some kind of uh, baseball game today. So uh, it's a good thing. And not one person, when you talk about Chuck Merriweather and we, and we, you know, it just, everybody just is so complimentary and uh, so positive. And I think that's, you know, because Chuck was such a positive, you know, guy. I mean, just nobody has an ill word to say about him. And that is, you know, in umpire circles is extremely yeah. That's right. When there's usually so much jealousy and why this guy gets this event or whatever, uh, there, he was a guy that everybody gravitated to. And he was just a very much a very positive and a very uh, a loving man. He, uh, he, I always said, Chuck, you're too nice a guy to be an umpire. You should have, 
you should have been something else. But uh, he was a very good umpire. And, and if he had to, he could get angry. But he usually had to fake it most of the time. <laughs> I wish if we all were like that. We'd live in a great yeah. world. Uh, yeah, isn't that the truth? You were lucky enough to work two All-Star games. I don't mention All-Star games on the podcast very much because it's it's an exhibition, right? But you right. work four right. All-Star games in two plates. I mean, it just yeah. – you know, in yeah. 2010, your last season, did did they know you were retiring in 2010 and want to throw you a bone by giving you the plate in the, in the All-Star game, or did that just kind of happen by chance? I think they uh, no, they did not know I was going to retire because I didn't know I was going to retire till at the end of the year. Um, and and sitting down at home, I no, I had no idea I was going to retire. And I, I mean, we all start thinking about that way as we get a little bit older in the game and stuff. But no, I'd had no chance. So it was it was a nice thrill, and it sure was a nice event to go out on. I enjoyed it. Uh, but my uh, the first game in Atlanta that I um, had the home plate was probably the most rewarding game I've ever had in my career. Obviously it was, I think all umpires want to work to play it in an all-star game. I think that it's kind of a goal, uh, you know, yeah. What would really be a little crown jewel in, in my hat to say that I had the plate in an all-star game. Well, the first one I had was in Atlanta and major league baseball always has a theme for every all-star game. And this one was the year of the kids. And so at the start of the game, they open up center field and all the players from the American League National League walk onto the field with their families. Extremely cool. But for the umpires, our family came from behind home plate and were at home plate. So I had all four of my children stand with me at the National Anthem and the players' introduction and all that at home plate. And the pictures that I have from that particular game and that particular scenario was, was meant more to me than anything else. Just uh, you never think that you're going to have your, I have four children, three boys and my daughter and my wife, and we were all at home plate for the national anthem. And, you know, and I, it, it was just phenomenal experience to have that there. And so the year of the kids, and that theme of that all-star game uh, really, really had ho- hit home to me because my family made tremendous sacrifices for me when I was gone. I missed an awful lot of uh, baseball games and little league games and things at schools because I was out doing my thing. But they uh, they all knew that this is what we had to do, and it was kind of a reward for them to be at home play too. I want to talk about balls and strikes. You were one okay. of the best ball strike guys. Everybody wanted Mike Riley in the American League, right? And in the big leagues, they wanted Mike Riley behind the plate in the big game. But if you watched Mike Riley work, you'd be like, well, wait a minute. He does everything you're not supposed to. He's moving with the pitch. He's, but you know, yet I know one thing your eyes weren't closed. You weren't turning your eyes to the side. Your head was right there on every pitch. You followed it a little bit with your body. If you went to go to a college camp, they give you Division Three games, yet in Major League Baseball, one of the best ball strike guys around. Take me through how you evolved into moving as the pitch came in. Was that a, something that you knew you were doing, or was it just kind of something that happened over time? You know what? I, I wish I had an answer to that, but but you're 100% correct. If you, you would have a supervisor go to the minor leagues, 
and and watch a guy work the way I worked and the way I moved and followed pitches, uh, you you probably wouldn't hire him for the big leagues thinking that mechanically that's not the way you're supposed to get things right. And uh, but for me, uh, I wasn't a big guy, so I was able to get down low, low, and I could and I always had good movement. But so. Um, yeah, I did things mechanically that that they don't teach. But, you know, we have a lot of pitchers that don't have the greatest mechanics in the world. But for some reason, they can strike out a lot of hitters. Uh, for some reason, I had a God-given ability to be able to see pitches uh, for the way I worked. So uh, for me, it worked. It probably wouldn't work for a lot of other people. And uh, it's it, it's just something that and again i don't know if i start with that type of movement but uh and because we didn't watch that much film early on in my career but uh, towards the end obviously film was big and and uh but i was lucky uh no one really could say anything about it because my quest you know our computer driven quest tech at that time is the machine my ratings were always very good and uh so I could get away with having bad mechanics as long as my results were good and my results were, you know, were pretty good. We learned about uh, Ernie Harwell, the longtime Hall of Fame voice of the Detroit Tigers, giving you a nickname that I didn't know about, the Dean of Michigan Umpires. But how did he give you the nickname Cornflakes, one that's really stuck? Yeah, it did strike. And it it was, um, well, it was a nickname that, you know, Cornflakes Riley is not, you know, like uh, some great nickname. It's a little silly. It's a little, you know, but it all started in 1982. And obviously I'm from Battle Creek, Michigan, and that's the home of Kellogg cereal. Well, <clears throat> Ernie Harwell and in that season, Kellogg's was doing a special. They had Fernando Van Venzuela, the pitcher from the Dodgers, his pitcher was on the cornflakes box for two months. And then they did the San Diego chicken and he was on the box for two months, but they wanted to put an umpire on there and they were just going to use uh, an actor a face and not really an umpire. Well, there were some people at Kellogg's that I knew and uh, they said, well, why are we getting this nameless face on this box? when we have from our own hometown, a major league umpire. So with that being said, uh, Kellogg's went, they approached me if I would do it. And uh, obviously I agreed to it. And uh, I was on the Kellogg box in 1982. And uh, Ernie Harwell at that time, who, who is, was by far the best broadcaster, uh, him and Vince Scully and the same, you know, one, two. And, so, but Ernie was a tremendous guy and a nice person. And so he always kept calling me um, Cornflakes Riley because I was on the Cornflakes bike. If you remember Joe Brinkman, he ran the umpire school. He always called him Professor Joe. And, and Chuck Merriweather went in the offseason in the minor leagues. He was a maitre d' for one. So he called the maitre d' from Nashville. Well, so my nickname, he called me Cornflakes Riley because I was on the Cornflakes box. So, Again, probably not the nickname that I would really like to have associated with a <laughs> nickname. You know, people would like Killer or Hawkeye or something, but whatever. 
And But coming from Ernie Harwell, to me, it was the biggest compliment I ever had because I tell people there's probably nobody in the game that I respected more than Ernie Harwell. He was one of the most humble uh man he broadcast but he never criticized uh, you never you never would call you out for a mistake it would he, he he was just a tremendous broadcaster and a tremendous guy so for him to come up with the nickname cornflakes riley to me it was an honor and i i appreciate it and my home city a lot of people still call me cornflakes riley and uh and that's just fine with me mike i think it beats being called fruit loops yeah, Fruit Loops would be really bad. So I, I'll, I'll take Tony. I, I, yeah, I'll take Corn Flakes Riley. So that that was good. So, but like again, and if it would have came from somebody else, I wouldn't have maybe appreciated as much. But for Ernie Harwell, just a tremendous compliment. A lot of people may not know, and we talked during the break. I said, man, you are really good, Mike, at giving concise answers and giving a lot of information in those answers. And you told me something I didn't know because uh, I had said you'd be great on uh, on Fox doing the uh, umpiring review stuff. And uh, you told me a nice little story. Can you, you take me through how Fox reached out to you to uh, maybe get a job there? Yeah, I, uh, I, I when I retired in uh, my last year and I, I was sitting here in my Florida home and I got a call and. They asked me if I would be interested in uh, working for Fox and uh, and in talking about the instant replay and what umpires are doing and where you would take this player, various things that the announcers really don't know about the game. And uh, so and I was really quite excited. So they flew me out to spring training and I did a couple uh, audition tapes and uh, went through simulated uh, spring training games. And uh, I was out there three days and uh, sat down with uh, the executives from Fox and uh, actually Mike Ferraro, who does it for the uh, NFL and just does a tremendous job with his insights with the game of football. So they, they actually wanted me to do the same job that for baseball that he does for football. So he was in there with us and uh, we talked. And like I said, I did the tapes and the games for spring training and I came home and I didn't know if they would, what they thought. And I thought I did a pretty good job and didn't know what would come of it. It was nice three days out in LA. So, but when I got home, sure enough, I got a call from one of the executives and they offered me a contract and went through all the details of the the bonus, the signing and, and the contract and what my responsibilities would do. And I told them I'd have to get back with them, give me a few days and I would think about it. Well, sat down with my wife and uh, we just decided that, you know, I'd traveled for 39 years, 34 of those at the major league level. And, and it was just time to be home and, and enjoy uh, retirement a little bit. And so I actually turned down the job and, and I felt so good that I was offered the job and, uh, and, uh, but I, it, it just wasn't going to work for me. I didn't want to, fly out to LA every Saturday and be in the studio and then be at ballparks again. And so, like I said, I turned the job down and sure enough, I don't think I ever regretted it, but I took great pride in the fact that I was offered the job. And, uh, and then they came back to me at the end of that season and the playoffs were starting and they asked if I would do the playoff games. I had 28 games I would have been assigned to in the playoffs and, 
And again, sat down with my wife and we discussed it and uh, just decided that that probably wouldn't be the best thing for me going forward and just enjoy this uh, new phase of my life. And uh, so it was tough to say no and to stay away from baseball, but uh, that's what I did. Let's take some questions from the users uh, on our website. The first one has... uh isn't about you. It's about uh, your nephew, Brian Riley, um, who I actually oh. went to umpire with in 2002. Stephen Grady and Kicker's Rule and several others asked, what is Brian up to these days? He had a great career for himself. And uh, here's another question here. Uh, he was one of my favorite instructors, said Kicker's Rule at uh, Harry's and uh, was stunned that he didn't make it to the MLB level. Um, what is Brian up to these days? Okay, that's a great question, and I tell you what, Brian's a great kid, uh, had a really nice minor league career. I thought he was going to go to the big leagues, but for some reason there was something that someone might just not wanted what they were looking for, but uh, I, I didn't see it because I just saw a kid that was very passionate and did a very good job of what he did. But Brian is up to now, It's he's a father too beautiful two little little boy little girl and he lives in grand rapids michigan and he's uh, uh he was a finance guy in college and went with edward jones but now he's a comp controller for uh uh his brother-in-law's uh automobile uh place called wenzel buick chevrolet up in grand rapids michigan uh just a great kid and uh and a great father and a great husband and He's got a nice, nice life, and uh, you know, I tell him, I said, uh, you gave a lot for baseball, and you gave up a lot not getting to the major leagues, but I think your life turned out pretty well. So he, he's doing quite well, very successful. Mark asks, Mike truly loved watching you work. Great field presence, hustle, total professional. He had two questions for you, both on uh, situations that you were on the field for. You were at home plate in Chicago for the Steve Bartman Moises Alou incident. Would love to hear your memories and thoughts about that game. Yeah, that that is probably one of the most memorable games that I had in my career just because of what how big that situation turned out to be. Um I, I remember the game vividly, and of course, one thing, that's on ESPN all the time. They do the 30-on-30s or whatever, but that game was going along, and I'm telling you, Pryor was the pitcher for the Cubs, and it's probably the most dominating postseason pitching that I saw in my career. For the, like the first six innings or five and a third, whatever the, the total was, he, he they were they weren't touching him and it was boom boom and now of course now they get the runner on and and the balls hit down third base and and up and Mike Everett who was the third base umpire was right on top of play I I was the home plate umpire so I came around but had just about the same angle Mike had and you know it was very close to being in the stands or not but it was in the stands Mike made a great call and uh, and. That game turned from that moment to I don't know how many more pitched prior, and I think only threw eight more pitches or whatever that scenario was, but from going from the most dominating pitching performance to the game being over, all the momentum now goes to the Miami Marlins, and and it, it, the game's over, and and the Cubs lose. I I've, I've never 
the quietest stadium after I ever left the game, whether the home team wins or lose, it was just, it was unbelievable how that atmosphere in that ballpark changed in the course between that play and the, the, the next pitches that prior through, and then he's out of the game. And it was, I, it's still unbelievable how that game changed and how that game turned out. And then how the series turned out because well, the Cubs ended up losing the next day too, after having a lead when Kerry Wood was pitching. So, uh, it was unbelievable. And that play, really, there was never an argument on the field about whether it was fair or foul. Uh, uh, Moses, uh, holy, uh, I'm trying to think the, the left fielder, but whatever, he, you know, he threw his glove. He was disgusted at the fans. He wasn't, you know, he didn't, he thought he had a chance to make the play, which he, which he did, and, and wasn't able to make it, but never once was there really anything. Dusty Baker came out of the dugout as I was kind of walking back to home plate. And he says, Mike, was that in the stands? And I said, yes. And, and that was it. There was, there was no question on the field whether that was fan interference or not. So, and, and again, and then everything else, the Bartman thing took off and, uh, and that was it. And we felt so sorry for this guy because he was, I mean, he literally was castrated for what he did. So it was an unfortunate situation and a game that I, uh, like I said, I've never been involved in a game that turned that fast, in, in especially in a playoff situation. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty another pretty incredible crew: Jerry Crawford, Chuck Merriweather, Field and Colbert, and you mentioned Mike Everett, Larry Poncino working the right field line. Interestingly oh, yeah. enough, a lot of people don't remember that that was actually the third batter of the inning, and it was a three nothing game at the time. Like that game oh, was. Yeah. I mean, it was a, oh. a four-hitter. It was 3 nothing. runner on second, one out. That's not the end of the world. And the call was correct. But everybody yeah. goes back. We still have people saying, oh, no. the bo-. like This is what drives me nuts. Even in the post-game write-up of that, I'll read you what it says. Luis Castilla hit a foul ball down the left field line at the stands where the ruling was that the fan did not interfere with Moise Salou. No, the, the the ball was in the stands. It wasn't a ruling. It was correct. Like, it's you know, the correct call was made. And and that's just the way yeah. we talk about framework. I mean, yes. and then no doubt about, the other no doubt about people it. talk about it. I'm sorry for filibustering here, but there was a huge yeah. error in that game at the shortstop. And I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, the uh, shortstop two plays uh, later, uh, that's what changed yeah. the game on a routine double play ball. Yeah, that they would have been out of the inning had he made that play. And, and again, like I said, that, that's where the momentum uh, from prior just, I mean, it was like the air came right out of the balloon. I mean, it just, you, I never seen anything happen like that in my career where it changed that quickly. And going from a most dominated postseason pitching assignment that I had ever had and, uh, and to going to where the Cubs, you know, <laughs> lose the game. I'll never forget that series, too, because uh, Jerry Crawford was working home plate in the first game. And I'm out in right field just looking to have a really nice, you know, nice, not a day off because you never know what's going to happen, but usually a little less responsibility out there standing in right field. And uh, Jerry gets sick. And I'll never forget uh, the supervisor came down to be in right field and called me over. And he said, uh, Jerry's sick. He said, I want you to run in and get dressed. And went work to play, so I actually ended up working two plate assignments in that series at game one and game five. So 
<laughs> but uh, and, and it was a good playoff, but uh, and with some great umpires working also, so it was fun. Yeah, I mean, you, you worked game one after being in right field, then you go back to right field, and people look at the the thing, like, well, Mike, they really like Mike Riley. He worked three right field assignments, but you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the first time I've ever had an umpire get sick, and then you know, I've had umpires get hurt, you know, with foul ball, and then you go get dressed. That happens all the time, but. Very seldom in a playoff game to have a, a plate umpire that got sick. And I knew Jerry wasn't feeling too good before the game, but, you know, he's a tough guy, and uh, I didn't uh, anticipate him going down. But uh, he did. He, he missed that game and then missed a couple other, but then came back and finished the series with us. So I, I was, wonder if he was feeling that sick in game seven, knowing how tough that Jerry Crawford is, if he would have came. You might have had to get him out of that game with a crowbar and, uh, and some other yeah. weaponry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he was a tough guy and a great umpire. Another question from Mark here. Uh, you were at second base on Richie Garcia's crew when Wade Boggs hit uh, the home run, if I remember correctly, in Tampa, or hit 3,000. How did you feel about that moment? And more generally, what is it like to see players achieve those kind of milestones in person? Yeah, I was on the field when Wade, Wade Boggs uh, did that. And, uh, yeah, you know, I – well, you're there for so many of them that uh, they all, you know, they, not that they run together, but, you know, when you're there for 34 years, you're going to have a lot of games and a lot of records broken and, you know, no hitter, perfect games, things like that. And uh, so, but uh, Wade Boggs was a, a, a really a good guy and a kind of guy you rooted for and uh, did things the right way on and off the field and, uh, and, you just kind of rooted for him. So when he did that, that, that was a nice accomplishment. Steven Gossman asks, uh, what exactly, I don't know if you'd know about this being that you never were choosing the postseason umpires, but uh, what exactly goes into choosing postseason assignments and world series assignments? Um, are there, is it, is there any chance that umpires have a choice to turn down a postseason job? Yeah, I, you could turn it down. I don't know if, I know anybody that's ever turned. Well, well, I really can't say. I think a couple guys have said, hey, uh, I got this going on this winter. I'd like that to be considered. So I don't think they were ever asked, but I think they let them know that, that hey, I worked last year. Let's let somebody else work. So I, I do know of a situation like that. So, um, But all this the postseason has really changed since I very started. One of my first years in the league, you had to be in the league, I think it was five years before you were even eligible to work a postseason play. And then it was all done on rotation. So uh, if I worked, I couldn't work till every, if I worked a postseason assignment and was assigned, I couldn't work till everybody on the staff worked again. So it took out all what, Back then, we considered the politics of maybe some guys doing some things differently to get postseason assignments. So that got taken out through negotiations on our collective bargaining agreements. And then, uh, and it's been a long time now because for at least oh, in 25 years, probably, baseball's had the opportunity to pick whoever they want with a couple stipulations. You couldn't work back-to-back World Series. Uh, you could work back-to-back playoffs, Amos, but not World Series. And uh, that way it gave a few more guys an opportunity to work. But uh, 
And, and, and again, still to this day, they pick the people they want and they go on the ratings and uh, they go on your scores that are generated from the computer ratings on your balls and strikes. And uh, so they're, they're getting the best umpires to work the bulk postseason every year. Dave wants to know what the difference uh, was between clubby tips when you first got to the big leagues and clubby tips when you left the big leagues. I imagine, <laughs> I imagine it, it was commiserate to pay to a certain degree. Very much so. Uh, my first big league paycheck or contract was like for $16,000. So, uh, and then when I left 34 years later through a lot of negotiations and, and, and I'm sure the young umpires on the staff realize what guys in my era did for their success financially. But, uh, because I went on strike four different times, uh, and, uh, was fired a couple times. And, uh, and now hopefully we never have this uh, labor problem in baseball between management and umpire. And again, because of what guys early on in my career did and the bill Hallers, you know, the, you know, all the, all the older guys that stood up and developed our union and made it as strong as it is, that we were able to have that kind of success. So, but getting back to the financial part of clubbies, we had some tremendous clubhouse guys, and they did so much for us, and uh, uh, and, and we we tipped well. And uh, but I think it, it's a bond and a relationship that the umpires have with the clubhouse kids. And I know when I retired, I, I don't think there was a clubhouse kid in the league that didn't send me some kind of note or uh, enjoy your retirement, have fun, and uh, and we'll miss you and, and stuff like that. So we had a, cro- a very very close relationship with many many clubhouse guys. It's where you spend a lot of time, and uh, if you don't get along with your clubby. You know, it's a problem. And and we had some good ones. And and we had some that weren't quite as good, but the ones weren't quite as good, you know, they didn't quite stay around. But some of the guys that were there for long, long times were, 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 you know, just great guys and and did what you wanted and did what they were supposed to do. Mike, here's one that doesn't apply to you, but we'll ask it anyway. Um, Yeehaw wants to know, can you move on from a bad call is there a bad call that stuck with you that you remember to this day? I know that doesn't apply well, to you. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't have the big, big one, but there was many nights I went back to my hotel and I go, God, how in the hell did I make that call? I mean, look where I was. I should have never been where I was. And I, I, I would, because I, I think what a lot of the fans of baseball really don't realize is how serious we do take our mistakes and, and you know, we don't, we don't ever want a mistake. You, you want to be perfect. Well, that's not going to happen because we're not perfect people. We're not perfect beings. Players make mistakes. Managers make mistakes. Umpires are going to make mistakes. I don't think the average fan realizes how much it hurts an umpire when he's not correct. And I really do. I really do dislike what replay has done for the game. But one thing it has done it takes away a lot of sleepless nights for umpires because if they have made a mistake, they can go to replay, they turn it, they get it correct. Now, is that good for the game of baseball? That's up to whoever perceives it. But for me, those sleepless nights after making a call, those are tough. And, uh, and like I said, we strive to be perfect. We compete against the game. 
and you're not going to be perfect and you are going to make mistakes and you just have to realize that's part of the game. And, uh, and you just, you, you just hope you don't have that big moment, that big mistake. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up with the great Mike Riley, who in 1978 umpired 166 games in the American League. Just think about that, folks, when uh, guys are working about 115 to 120 now. That's when we return to the Plate Meeting Podcast, powered by Close Call Sports. Hey there, it's Gil reminding you to check us out at CloseCallSports.com on the web, on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us at Umpire Ejections. For all the latest umpiring news, ejection reports, videos, analysis, and more, of course, our podcasts. That's CloseCallSports.com. We welcome you back to the plate meeting powered by Close Call Sports. T-Mac here, Gil uh, running the controls as usual, and our guest, Mike Riley. 69 career ejections, we've touched on a couple of them. But uh, before the break, I mentioned in 1978, Mike, you worked... 166 games uh picking up a lot of double headers that year or just uh just bad luck <laughs> well I, I obviously 162 schedules so i must have picked up a couple double headers from uh, <laughs> a couple other people that got rained out and fortunate but uh yeah that's that's a lot of games and you know the old days we only get used to get three days off and that would be the all-star break where you actually could come home so through a really a, a strong union and negotiating, we were able to get it down where uh, now the guys get three weeks and maybe even that fourth week off. So they're working 100 and maybe 10, 20 games a year instead of that 166. That was a big grind back then. and uh, But uh, the guys were tough back then, and they knew that they had to go to work every day and do what they had to do. But, uh, yeah, that's a lot of games. Noah Yingling wants to know, who was your favorite crew chief to work for? Oh, boy, I had some great ones. I really had some great ones. I got to start with Bill Haller. My first one, what a what a great man he was. And Bill's still alive, so that's a good thing. Quick story about Bill. He worked the World Series. I got married in 82. He had worked the World Series in St. Louis. He had a night game in St. Louis, drove all night to my wedding, and was in the back of the church when I was uh, – going into the church to get married. I'll never forget that. Uh, I worked with Rich Garcia many years uh, as a crew chief, a very hardworking, very, 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 very serious, great crew chief. Uh, If you ever had an ejection on the field, he'd usually end up picking somebody else off too. So he he just, one of those umpires always had your back and just a great guy to work with. um, I, like I said, I, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, old name Jer- Jerry Newdecker. I worked with him a couple of years. Good guy. And uh, but I, I guess the first one I really worked with the most was Bill Haller. So I'd I'd have to say um, uh, I tried to learn everything I could from him and just all the knowledge that he had. Uh, I tried to soak up every day. And uh, and like I said, I. He was as good as you get. And, you know, we were talking about a guy that didn't, myself personally, didn't have maybe the greatest mechanics behind home plate. Well, Bill Haller didn't have the greatest mechanics behind home plate either. And he probably was maybe one of the best ball strikes, ball strike umpire in the history of the game. So uh, he, he, just a good umpire and a good guy. 
Noah had a couple other questions here. And one of them was how you became a crew chief before the 2000 season. Fairly far into your career, Noah writes, 3,095 games. He's good at math. Did you ever yeah. apply to be a crew chief before you were selected? Um, and with the mass yeah, resignation, yeah. you have seven new crew chiefs that year. Take us right. through the selection process. Uh, well, for, for that. I tell you, I, I had been rumored to be a crew chief, and uh, and uh, but I had worked with Rich Garcia for a lot of years, and I don't know exactly how many it would be, uh, but we had worked together for 12, 14, maybe 16 seasons on and off. And I had always said I, I, I wouldn't care to work with anybody else, or whether to be a crew chief or not, as long as I could work with Garcia, because I, everything he did on the field is things that, that I liked in an umpire. So I was very comfortable being his number two man for all those years, and, and we had a really nice run at it. Uh, but then uh, when I was asked to be it, it was the point in my career, and uh, and uh, actually Richie was not working then. And uh, and when they asked me, I said, "Yeah, it's time for me." And and, and it turned out to be a great experience. I'm, I'm really glad I had the opportunity to be a crew chief for those last uh, nine years. I think it was, and uh, and then uh, and it was cool for me to my last year. I was the senior umpire. Uh, in baseball, and, uh, and that meant a lot. So it just, you know, longevity and doing your job and being respected is what you look for uh, in, a, in, a, in a nice career. And and so all those combinations of working the postseasons and World Series and crew chiefs and all-star games, those are what make you feel good when you sit back and realize what your career was all about. Any baseball fan, uh, to piggyback on that, asked, what were some of the factors that you went into deciding how to build your crew that might lead to the pairings coming back? We all know that you worked with uh, with Coop for such a long time, but how did your thought process go? You, I mean, you had a crew in general of your when you were crew chief, and even when you weren't up under Richie, of being under the radar. I mean, you guys were, weren't making ESPN highlights very often. And that's one of the reasons well, we haven't asked you about the big disco demolition. You know, there's no, there aren't right. a lot of, you know, uh, Davy Phillips type incidents that happened for you. you. Guys are generally off the radar. So how did you build yeah. your crew? Well, I'll be honest with you. I was fortunate that uh, I had really some great crew members. I had Jeff Kellogg for quite a few years, and and there's probably nobody I think on the current staff that's as good as Jeff and. And, uh, and he's just a tremendous umpire. And I had Jeff for quite a few years in my, my early crew chief days. And, and I had Coop, and he was a great umpire. I had Chuck Merriweather, who was another great umpire. And I had a young kid that I liked a lot, and Andy Fletcher. And, uh, and uh, you know, so these guys are just good umpires. And I think if, if you try to lead the right way and uh, tell them and, and try to show them what leadership and what you have to be to be successful at that level and how you have to treat players and, and how the player has to treat you. And uh, I was fortunate that all the guys that I had in my crew or, you know, the, uh, I could say with, without, there might've been one or two guys that I didn't really care to have in my crew. And I was asked to have them on my crew because the league wanted me to, 
to see if I could work with him and do some things. And uh, yeah, but uh, 99% of the guys I had in my crew were just great guys. And I had Jerry Neals for a few years and just another really good person and a good man and a hardworking umpire. And, and so I had those type of guys. So when you have those type of guys, it makes for a successful crew. Mike, what do you think of replay these days? Well, like I said, I personally don't like it because I think it takes away from the game. I understand what it's there for. Uh, the technology is there. Obviously, we're never going to get rid of it. Uh, it uh, I think it's good for the umpires. I think it makes their job easier. I know to administrate the game, it's a little tougher with all the stuff they have with replay. But, you know, and as you know, with your background in umpiring, we don't see arguments anymore. In the old days, you used to evaluate an umpire on, you know, ball strike, safe and out, and how you handled yourself in arguments. Well, out of the equation now, you've taken this argument thing out. You don't really have it anymore. They just go to the replay and then you play on. And I think it's taken away from the game. I understand it. Uh, and uh, But personally, I think it takes away from the game. I I think the, the old baseball fan used to love to see the, you know, the Bill Haller, Earl Weaver rejections, the arguments, and Billy Martin stuff, and umpires, you know, arguing back and holding their ground and stuff. But you don't see it now. And the game is still the game of baseball, and it's still the greatest game we have. But it's really changed in the last 10 years. Mike, I could talk to you for hours. I mean, we haven't even touched – we didn't even touch on Billy Martin or Cal Ripken or any of the people, <laughs> that, a lot of the people that were – but just really quickly, you had mentioned you had a pretty good relationship with Earl Weaver for the most part. Is uh, uh-huh. I think you did. Um, or as well as any umpire could possibly have. <laughs> <laughs> so, How was yeah. your relationship with Billy? I'm always curious on this. You know, it's kind of funny that when I broke in – Bill Haller was a very strong umpire. And I'm telling you, and so I, and he and Martin got along. Not too many people, Billy Martin was the kind of manager, if you would yell back at him as much as he would yell, he respected that. He didn't like the guy that he could run over. So, and he would run over him more if he could. But a guy like Bill Haller was really a strong umpire. So I was very fortunate I worked under Bill and so I kind of understood Martin, and, and I, I personally, I never had to eject Billy Martin. I don't think I really had. Of course, he was getting fired all the time anyway. But uh, I, uh, I didn't have too many serious arguments with him. Uh, I mean, I go back to Ralph Hauk, and I probably threw him out more more than any manager. And he was one of those guys, hey, he'd slap me on the back and say, hey, kid, we put on a great show last night, didn't we? And i said, yeah, we sure did. And, uh, and, and you know, Johnny McNamara and guys like that who were to get ejected more. But we're, we're actually good people, just got ejected over situations, that's all. But uh, Billy Martin and Earl Weaver were by far the two most uh, confrontationalist managers that we've ever had in the game. They they would die with instant replay now. They wouldn't know. They'd be punching the instant replay machine right now. <laughs> they'd have nobody they could take aggression out on. So it, it took the personality. Replay's taking personality out of managers, too. I mean, you, you don't have that anymore. You don't have the personality. So you've you got a guy that's 
pretty strong in the technology. Two last questions. Uh, how's Notre Dame football going to be in 2020? I think we're going to be pretty good. You know, that's that's something I really love. But uh, I think we're going to be pretty good. Brian Kelly's done a nice job recruiting. Uh, got a really good class coming in this year. And they really, right now they got a better class coming in next year. So uh, I, I think we're going to be good. We just lost a few players through the uh, early, uh, you know, exiting. But uh, they're going to be good. They, they, things are good there. I got to like the way they're going. You went to the bowl game uh, in Orlando uh, over over Iowa State in I think it was in 2019. Seems like just just yeah. yesterday we we're in 2019. Yeah, sure does. Uh, but how how did you develop this this great love of a uh, Notre Dame well, specifically football? Not, I, I guess growing up Irish and Catholic, and uh, uh, my father <laughs> was a big Notre Dame fan, and. We grew up in the early days out and when I was real young in Iowa, and we'd get in the car on the weekends and drive to South Bend. And my dad would never have tickets, but he would always find tickets for us, and we'd get in there. And uh, so I guess that's kind of, and my brothers are all like, I am kind of crazy. And and, uh, and it's just, I don't know. I, I just like the way Notre Dame does things. I think they do things in a, in a, in a, in the way things should be done. I like the way that... Uh, Father Heschberg, I always had a lot of respect for him, the way he ran the university. And so, I, yeah, like, you know, it, it's it's a good thing. It's it's nice to have a – I was never allowed to be a fan of baseball or whatever. So to be a fan of football, it, it's a good thing. How's the golf game? Golf game is pretty good. For an old guy that just turned 70 and, you know, I got a seven handicap right now, trending to a six. So I, I've got no complaints there. It uh, fills up my days and uh, and uh, some days are a little better, And uh, uh, but it's good. I, I, I live in a community here in Florida and, and a great golf course we live on. And uh, so it's fun every day. It gives me something and I'm always out doing it. So, uh I get done with you, and like I said, we'll have lunch, but then I'm going up to the uh, driving range to see if I can hit some balls. <laughs> well, in between, we, we, we did this interview in between being at the uh, driving range, and I appreciate you so much for uh, yeah. giving us a couple wow. of hours of your time. I had an absolute blast talking to you, and you are one of the best oh, and boon uh, for us to have here on the podcast. Well, I just want to tell you guys how much I appreciate you reaching out and, and let me talk a little bit about the game that I love so much and the guys that I love so much. But uh, it, it is so good to sit there and talk about the game of baseball. And that'll wrap up another edition of the Plate Meeting Podcast right here on Close Call Sport. For our guest, an umpire of four World Series and over 4,500 Major League Baseball games, including the postseason, Mike Riley. And my producer, Gil Imber, I'm Tim McCaffrey. Until next time, always do what's right, not what's easy. Happy umpiring, everyone.